Throughout the centuries, certain forms of creative expression have attained a level of preeminence in Western society, studied and praised and celebrated by many as our greatest achievement. These revered forms of culture include classical literature and poetry, the music of the great composers, and the paintings and sculptures of the old masters. The names associated with these magnificent accomplishments are known to all. Da Vinci, Beethoven, Shakespeare, Rembrandt, Wilde, and Picasso. Great as these mediums and their finest practitioners are, our society also cultivates a vast amount of creative work whose expressions are often relegated to the fringes by the arbiters of good taste. These marginalized forms of culture include professional wrestling and the world of games and fantasy, the work of independent filmmakers and musicians, and the unique art and narratives found in comics. The names associated with these often unappreciated accomplishments are not quite as iconic. Savage, Gygax, Lee and Kirby, Flair, Moore, York, Jackson and Livingston. However, these names and the mediums they are associated with are great. And while they have often been neglected by academia, their greatness is apparent to millions of people and celebrated every day. Good taste be dead. Alongside my partner in lowbrow fandom, Yo. We strive to illuminate the names of these rejected individuals and the art they create and allow you, the listener, to discover new and wondrous worlds of creative expression. We are the knowledgeable champions of the unrecognized. We are the Fringe Scholars. Hello. Welcome to the Fringe Scholars. Um, my name is Kelly Nelson, and this is my associate, Moss Sherkogel. Moss Sherkogel. <laughs> I always watch that. Sherkogel. You announced the Sher. I'll say that. I'll do the whole thing. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's kind of a funny bit. We'll leave it. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to our monthly primer on all things culturally unacceptable. Uh, maybe we should thank everyone supporting. We should lie and pretend that people have really liked our first episode. Well, I mean, there has been some some comments. Have you heard any comments? Have you received any? Yeah, my sister. Uh... Well, we would like to thank Kelly's sister for listening to the show and everybody else that I'm sure listened to it and just didn't have the courage to speak up. If anybody does want to send us a line or uh, or give us some kind words or uh, savage hate mail, <laughs> you can contact us at uh, fringescholars at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. And yes, um, our website or our blog is uh, fringescholars.wordpress.com. Please come and check it out. I've you know, added a few <laughs> wrestling ramblings and uh, supplemental bits that will help you appreciate the wonderful world of wrestling even more. And yeah. We've uh, we've also solidified our release schedule for this show. From now on, we're going to be releasing the show on the 15th of every month. This way, I can just barely stretch the uh, tattered, pre-faded denim of my attention between this show and my other podcast, We're Gonna Make It, which updates on the first of each month. Two weeks to make each show. No problem, right? Yeah, that's easy for me, that's for sure. Well, it's easy for you. You don't do the editing. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna get you editing. I feel like next episode, Kelly, you are gonna do the editing. I'm okay. gonna show you how to use Audacity. Right. So buckle your seatbelt, oh, folks. Right. This is the last time you're gonna hear 
tasteful editing. The rest of it's all going to be long pauses and clicks and pops. <laughs> Static. Anyways, Kelly, you mentioned wrestling. Last time you wowed us with a surprisingly entertaining look at your particular drug of choice, professional wrestling. And uh, today we're going to get something a little bit more moss-flavored. You gave us a pseudo-sport that's been a part of North American culture for a hundred years, and yet is still spat upon by just about everyone, particularly the sort of so-called intellectual community that abhors its muscle-bound pandering and crude nature. But I am about to deliver to you a cultural nugget that's almost exclusively appreciated by an intellectual community and is basically feared and reviled by anyone who's ever crunched a squat or maxed a glute muscle terms. (laughs) Today, we look at fantasy role-playing. Challenge your imagination to come alive. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. Win the treasure. Unleash the power of your imagination. Episode 2. Fantasy Role Playing. You just heard audio from a couple commercials for TSR in the early 80s. That was a lead role-playing manufacturer. So, fantasy role-playing. <laughs> That could, that could be taken to mean a few different things, but... <laughs> maybe, maybe I should clarify that. Um, we're going to talk about high fantasy role-playing... No, is that better? High fantasy? <laughs> no, it's a thing. <laughs> Again, that could be taken to mean a few different uh, things. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, we are going to talk about games that are played on a, on a table, commonly called tabletop role-playing games, that involve a fantasy world, not explicitly sexual connotations. Well, there's no women involved. Uh, you know, Kelly. <laughs> the stereotypical image. Don't you do this. There are plenty of... Nah, no, usually there's not. Pretty rare, <laughs> my experience. <laughs> it's like wrestling. It's it's mostly a male It is a bit of a boys club. Yeah. But I suppose our whole fringe scholar sort of academic look, you know, it, it is sort of reminiscent of crusty old men in pith helmets sitting inside, you know. Yeah, we can't let the women have too much education because, Lord knows, you know, it would corrupt their fragile mind. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about uh, fantasy role-playing. I've been avoiding just saying outright that we're going to be talking about Dungeons & Dragons because Dungeons & Dragons is just one of many fantasy role-playing games, one of these tabletop role-playing games. There's plenty of role-playing games that extend beyond the fantasy genre. There's, there's all kinds of ones that deal with space exploration or pulp 1920s hard-boiled detectives or wushu kung fu movie style adventures. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of different genres that are explored in these role-playing games, but I just want to focus on fantasy role-playing today because it's a little bit easier for me to uh, compile it in a concise way to be understood. And also because fantasy role-playing was basically the genre that kicked off the entire wave. I suppose because Dungeons & Dragons was the first, it's the one that's sort of looked at as the default sort of... Exactly. uh, It's become synonymous with... With, uh, with tabletop role-playing games. Personally, the way that I the way that I got into D and D, and it was D and D when I uh, when I got into it was when I was very young. I was corrupted by a creepy old man. <laughs> yeah. Let's see if I can uh, let's see if I can tell you. So so corrupted and creepy and old man. So yeah. when I was young and living on an island 
my parents would work after school because they both had uh, both had jobs. My mother was a florist. My father was a forestry worker. Huh. Do you think that has anything to do with why I'm named Moss? Yeah. I'm seeing something there. And so I, after going to school, I would go to this daycare where they had a program for the older kids, right? The, the after-school program. And uh, it was really cool. There was this great, big, fantastic building with some really nice people working there. So a bunch of us kids did it. And this was, a, you know, I was maybe nine years old or so, nine or ten. And there was this dude that worked at the after-school program. And I have no idea why he worked there. He was very reticent. He was sort of quiet. He didn't seem to like children very much. He was tall and lanky and had this massive expanse of red, curly hair that just puffed out like an explosion of brain matter out of the back of his head. And this huge beard that concealed 85% of his face. <laughs> Gigantic Coke bottle glasses and just hair. That was all he was on top of like an eight foot tall frame. This was the man that taught me how to play Dungeons and Dragons. Sounds appropriate. So one night, this uh, this fellow, who I'm now convinced probably was a wizard himself, <laughs> presumably because he was bored, broke out Hero Quest, which was uh, it was a board game. You know, you got to move around a little uh, a little figure who was a dwarf or, uh, or a wizard or things like that. And through that, he sort of started to lead into and eventually introduce us to the proper game of Dungeons and Dragons, where you didn't have a board. Basically, all you had was just pieces of paper and some dice and you just had to imagine everything that was going on. Now, mm -hmm. teaching this to a 10-year-old child is pretty easy because kids have fantastic imaginations. Mm. And so then I wandered off to elementary school, and, uh, and of course, you're a kid, and whenever you learn something, you got to go tell your friends. So mm -hmm. I told all my buddies that didn't go to the after-school program, I told them all about this game, Dungeons & Dragons, and I started to teach them. And we would get together every lunch, and we would play. Now, the... Uh, the only issue is that I had no idea how to actually play it because I was witnessing it from a very limited perspective. I knew I would sit down and I would have a character and I knew what the character sheet looked like because it was in front of me and I could read it and it had things like how many weapons you have and, and what sort of damage the weapons do. I understood that there were some funny shaped dice. And then I understood that this grand red-haired wizard would sit there on the other side of the table and he would roll dice and sort of things would happen. Again, 10 years old, right? Mm -hmm. Very creative, very imaginative, not so good at rules. So for about three, four, or five years, we casually on and off played Dungeons & Dragons with no idea of how the rules worked. Yeah. All we knew was what a character sheet looked like. So we would make characters, and characters were really fun. A character sheet is a piece of paper that just tells you who your character is. It'll have their name, it'll have their description, it'll have who they are and what they do, and it'll have all these little kind of dice numbers and stats written all over it. And we had only the barest understanding of what this meant. So we would just get together, tell these amazing stories, and then we would just roll some dice. And if it looked like a good number, yeah, that works. You roll a low number, you go, nah, that's probably a failure. We just kind of goofed around with it. It was fun because it was a great way to just tell stories.
Eventually, once we got into high school, you know, we, we dropped it for quite some time because we had to focus on trying to be cool. <laughs> I don't know, some of us had better success than others. But the point is, we left D&D behind for a while, and then we sort of picked it back up in high school because a new edition of D&D came out that was easier to understand, but uh, but it was still the sort of thing that you kind of you keep to yourself. We were no longer going to the library at lunchtime and openly playing Dungeons & Dragons because we were 15, 16, right? And we did mm-hmm. not want anyone to know what secret depravities we held in our true hearts of hearts. Well, that's the point of the French scholars, isn't it? You know, we're taking these previously shameful activities and showing the world that they're not something to be scared of. You're right. You're totally right, Kelly. I mean, tabletop role-playing games are becoming more and more acceptable in recent years, right? You get this glamorization of nerd culture, but I still grew up in a time when it was strictly something you did behind closed doors. Don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, hey, I could argue that gamers are now just now getting their suffrage and that we are probably the most persecuted group in America. <laughs> well, I'd be careful about that. Uh, yeah, I don't want to get the hate mail from that statement. Let's just leave by saying that D&D wasn't something you played in public and often still isn't. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I remember you said not usually a lot of girls, right? Well, mm-hmm. how shocked were we when we were <laughs> maybe about 16 years old and two girls that we knew from Quadra Island came up to us and said, hey, you guys play Dungeons and Dragons, right? Do you want to teach us how to play? <laughs> Fuck, That's cool. Are you Are you serious? So yeah, we taught them how to play. And we played one short little adventure, and it was really entertaining. But I also remember, you know, we're sitting at my buddy's place, we're playing this game, the girls are there, and then somebody else pulls up in the driveway. We were just like, holy shit, hide the books. Fucking (laughs) dice underneath the couch cushions, you know? And and, and there was a younger kid that we were playing with, one of the girls' younger brothers, and he was like, why? What are are we doing? We were just like, just just, Sam, shut up, hide those pencils, stuff stuff that character sheet down the back of your pants, we're gonna hide this stuff. Hide it. Yeah, he didn't didn't quite understand, but, uh, but we understood all too well. It's been an on and off relationship you know, once we got out into the world and we realized that we could be cool in whatever way we wanted to, we became a little bit more open about this sort of thing. It is something that uh, that every couple years or so, it sort of resurges in my life. It wells back up and I feel the need. I feel that grip take me and I just have to play some Dungeons and Dragons. It's a lifelong passion. It's like my attraction to wrestling and comic books. I always go through these phases. Every few years I have to go back in. Um, well, I guess my own personal experience with Dungeons and Dragons when I was young is probably about 1984-ish, so when I was about seven. I had a friend who had a Intellivision Ooh. video game set. <laughs> Did you Have you ever played one of those? Probably. Kelly, I was born in 1984. Ah, uh, you, yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, one of the games my friend had was uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Which intrigued me at the time because it was definitely more complicated than your average uh, home video game at the time. Okay, this is Advanced Dungeons and Dragons video game cartridge. You have to buy it separately to play on the Intellivision video game system. Mom and Dad have to hook it up to the TV. What next? We're trying to find a crown, but it's real easy to get lost. So don't be surprised if the dragon finds you first. Holy cats, you just killed the dragon. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. That was from the 1982 commercial. They definitely make it sound easier than it is. 
I always tried to play it and I couldn't grasp it really, whereas my friend understood it. And I just loved to sit back and watch him play it because it told like this great story of him mm. getting crowns and, and <laughs> going to different parts of this region. And there was a map and all this. And it, it really fascinated me. And, you know, I never explored uh, Dungeons and Dragons after that. I, I don't think I even understood that it was anything other than just a video game for Intellivision at that time. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 15, 16, uh, my best friend at the time, his brother, his older brother, was uh, a big-time Dungeons & Dragons fan. And he had a group of friends, and they would play in the basement of their house. And they had a table that they made themselves with mountains and everything. Ooh. And uh, we, you know, would make fun of them for being such geeks, <laughs> not even realizing the irony that we were comic book geeks and wrestling <laughs> geeks and just total nerds ourselves but yep. for some reason you know dungeons and dragons was another level of geekdom that we were even we were too cool to lower ourselves to or whatever you want to call it. but that's totally true the notion of being a nerd like there is definitely a gradation right like you can be a comic book geek and yeah you still be pretty cool otherwise yeah you can you can sort of tread that border but at the bottom of that dog pile is the idea of Dungeons and Dragons and all tabletop role-playing, fantasy or otherwise. Sigh. Ha. But enough of this drivel. We're here to talk about weird activities and the reasons that people like them. To truly accept fantasy role-playing games, you first need to understand what they are. Perhaps the first thing to clear up, uh, Kelly, given your snickering at the beginning of this podcast, is what we mean by fantasy. <laughs> We're not talking about zip-up gimp masks and riding crops, you low-minded miscreant. Oh, kind of wish we were now. <laughs> no, no, there's no, there's no leather or latex. Well, there's, there's little. But when we say fantasy, what we mean is the world of wizards and dwarves, elves and knights, kings and dragons. We're talking magic. We're talking quests. We're talking voluptuous maidens with heaving bosoms. <laughs> Sometimes... These maidens are gnomes, and that's a bit weird, but we're fine with that because we're equal opportunity here. <laughs> this is the world that people best know as being popularized by J.R.R. Tolkien. When he wrote The Hobbit and later went on to write The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien took mythical concepts that had existed in folklore for centuries, and he solidified them into his own personal mythology. He pulled elves from Norse folklore, where they were depicted as badass warriors, and then later fairy tales from the United Kingdom, which saw them kind of more as mischievous, tiny imps that soured milk and spooked horses, really inoffensive minor types, the type that Shakespeare loved writing about. You know, you can see A Midsummer Night's Dream for some good examples of that. But he turned pesky little brownies into graceful, beautiful, human-sized magical beings. And he also gave them this sort of martial history of warfare and physicality, which was similar to the old Norse stories. Dwarves were another species that Tolkien borrowed directly from Norse myth, and they didn't, they didn't really need to be changed at all. Greedy, short, bearded, liked digging like hitting things with hammers, you know, blacksmiths to the gods and all that jazz. Oh, uh, can can we do a quick aside? Yeah, I guess we can. Okay, I just want to really quickly protest Tolkien's treatment of dwarves. They're supposed to be master blacksmiths, right? Like, who's who's going to forge something better than a dwarf? Am yeah. I right, Kelly? You're right. But, but in The Lord of the Rings, when the sacred sword of King's Narsal is reforged, it's done by elves. And in The Hobbit, these dwarves are all rocking around with their cool dwarf weapons, and then they find some elf swords, and they're all like, ooh, those are way better. 
seriously, Tolkien, if you're making elves the best blacksmiths in the land, what are you leaving the dwarves? Facial hair, that's it. So you're saying Tolkien was biased or, or um, prejudiced against dwarves for some He's reason? totally prejudiced. You know what? I think he just had a thing for the elves. I think he just made them just the badassest, badassedest of the people. He was like, oh yeah, they're magic and they live forever and they're totally hot and they can make rad swords and stuff. He didn't leave anything to anybody. I mean, look at hobbits. They didn't really get the long end of the stick. Well, they did have a book name, though. After one of them. Okay. You're the expert. I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so anyways, Tolkien forged uh, a lot of these fantasy tropes. Orcs were also a really big thing that he invented. He basically did that from scratch. And what exactly, sorry, what exactly is an orc? Well, historically, it was nothing. It was just a word that got thrown around here and there in various cultures with no consistent meaning. But Tolkien invented this race of muddy-skinned, ugly, piggish beings with primitive intelligence and a warlike nature, brutish, crude temperament, a nasty underbite with big old tusks sticking up. That's an orc. And the orc has been used in thousands of forms of media since Tolkien wrote them up. They were basically the foundation of the Warcraft game series, like World of Warcraft. They been a huge influence in just about every single fantasy setting ever since. My point, Kelly, is that fantasy basically didn't exist before J.R.R. Tolkien got his hands on it. And the fantasy worlds that we know today are effectively his grand brain children. No, brain, brain grandchildren. His grandchildren of the brain. And so when Dungeons and Dragons was in its inception, one of the first fantasy role-playing games back in 1974, still in the dawn years of the modern fantasy genre, it saw the influence of Tolkien's books. It saw their popularity, and it decided to borrow a few things. You see... Prior to D&D, there did exist a community of people who sat around in basements and played games while drinking Tang and hiding from girls. <laughs> they were war gamers. D&D evolved out of strategy wargaming, which was the fine art of lining up dozens or even hundreds of tiny little figures on a great big battlefield map and then meticulously moving them around one by one while rolling dice in convoluted rules to see whether or not your cannon ripped a guy's arm off. Some of these games came from war buffs who wanted to recreate the Battle of Gettysburg or the Normandy Beach Landing, and some of them were more original. It was the game Chainmail, which was developed by Gary Gygax and Jeff Perrin, that would go on to change things. Chainmail was a medieval war game where you controlled knights and soldiers, but shortly after its release, the creators released a fantasy expansion. With this, you could add magic and monsters to your game, and people liked it, especially the creators themselves. I, I love hearing about this stuff because... Gygax and his compatriots, they weren't shrewd businessmen who were out to exploit the latest craze. They were nerds. <laughs> they just wanted to play fun games by themselves, basically. So with this one guy, Dave Arneson, he just started adapting the chainmail rules for his own for his own entertainment. What if you just controlled one figure instead of an entire army? And what if that figure could collect new gear or gain experiences that would make him more powerful in battle? I was thinking, and that's interesting, because I wondered how these uh, role-playing adventures uh, began. Like There it was. 
Within a couple years, Gygax and Arneson were working on the fantasy game, which would later be thankfully rebranded as Dungeons and Dragons, with a crude system that was convoluted, complex, and relied really heavily on prior knowledge of war games, and a liberal sprinkling of Tolkien's creations to give the game zest, and a bit of selling power as well. I mean, I said they weren't businessmen, but these guys definitely exploited the popularity of Lord of the Rings to get some attention. They stuck in dwarves, elves, orcs to kind of draw on the crowd that had gathered around Lord of the Rings. I, I make that sound kind of bad. <laughs> you, you may get sued for slander. Oh, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> this has been the final episode of the Fringe Scholars. If, if, if the WWE hasn't shut us down already for using the Bret Hart theme song in the last oh, episode, yeah, right. yeah we're, <laughs> we are sunk. If, yeah. if more than ten people ever listen to this show... <laughs> yeah. So anyways, with these things together, they had done it. They had created a, a genre. Well, Moss, um, I'm interested exactly how you play Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, it's interesting hearing the the story behind it, but I must admit that uh, you know I think it, it it's an interesting game, and um, the rules are kind of kind of rambling. Okay, Moss, just explain the rules of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, please, and for myself. Kelly, I would be happy to. How to play a tabletop role playing game. As I've mentioned before, Dungeons and Dragons, and almost all fantasy role-playing games, is played almost exclusively using imagination and conversation. I mean, you can tease nerds for being antisocial all you want, but it takes a lot more meaningful discussion to slay a dragon than it does to goal a, a sports ball, to, 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 basket, to basket a dunk maker. I don't know. To basket a ball? You wouldn't believe that I'm a PE teacher half the time, would you? <laughs> well, I mean, anyone can have that show, I guess. <laughs> so anyways, the, uh, the publishers of games like Dungeons & Dragons, they would have you believe that all you need to play the game is the rule books, some dice, and some pencils and some paper. That's it. In reality, you don't even need the rule books if you've got a vague sense of what you're doing. I mean, truthfully, I've whipped out role-playing sessions with nothing more than a Blackberry to keep notes on and some coins to flip. As long as you have a way to record information and a way to resolve random situations, be it a, a deck of cards, some dice from a Monopoly game, or the fancier pretty dice that habitual gamers use, you're set. These dice you speak of, um, they're not your regular dice, are they? Not at all. No, 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 no. The dice are really the symbols of role-playing. It's all about, I mean, basically just getting a random number within a certain range, right? If you've got a normal six-sided die, you can get the numbers between one and six. Two dice will get you a range of two through twelve, with seven as being the most likely combination of two numbers. But what if you want, uh, say, the unpredictable nature of a single six-sided die, but you want a broader range of numbers? What do you do? You add more sides, Kelly. More sides! <laughs> the common role-playing dice start at four sides. It looks like a pyramid, and everyone hates it. Well, I mean, how do you roll a pyramid exactly? How does it not just keep landing on the same yeah, side? Yeah, it, it lands on different sides, but it, it is uh, it is always kind of like pointy side up. So <laughs> what they do is they write three numbers on each side of the die, and when you roll it, only one number will be facing down on each of the visible sides that you can't... Fuck it, no. I want to <laughs> sell people on tabletop role-playing, not scare them away. It doesn't exist. You can come back. The D, the D, D4 isn't a thing. Uh, so what's D4 mean? 
Oh, that's the colloquialism to refer to a dice by its number of sides. So a four-sided die is a d4, and a six-sided one is a d6. Beyond that, we have the d8 and the d10, which are both very fine dice, good diamond shape to them. The d10 is a bit soft with the extra sides, while the d8 is a bit harder, it's sharp, it's tough. That's the dice of the longsword. Are you following me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very surprised. <laughs> then we get the D12. 12 sides. This is getting really round in shape, since it's just overflowing with all these crazy sides. And then finally, you get the most significant symbol of tabletop gaming. The D20. The 20-sided die. An entire system of gaming is named after this die, since it's the basis of play. It is just a big old round die with a lot of sides, and that gives a lot of options. 20 of them, if you want to be precise. It's also really distinct. I mean, you have a handful of six-sided dice, and you could be playing craps, maybe liar's dice, Yahtzee. But if you roll a d20, you make a statement to the world. <laughs> I play D&D, bitches. <laughs> Y'all can suck a kobold. See, that's, I mean, that's the best way to put it. That's going to revolutionize the amount of fans that'll be into the game, because that's awesome. So I mentioned that the D20 is the basis of play. Uh, in a lot of systems, it is. You see, in tabletop roleplay, you tell a story together as a group. A typical playgroup is anywhere between three and six people. You can play with just two people, but it's a bit limited. And if you get more than six, it gets pretty crowded. So a good number of people to play with is five. And of those five, four of them will be players who control characters, and uh, they'll compose the party of adventurers. The characters here are known as player characters in a somewhat unimaginative naming convention. And the fifth player, the final player, is the dungeon master. Some systems call it a game master or a storyteller, but it's always the same role. This is the person who sets the stage. You always need to have one in any role-playing session, no matter how many people are playing or how few. This person designs the setting, they describe the world, and they create a ton of other characters for the players to interact with. In the same drab language, these are called non-player characters. Imagine that the players are actors portraying the heroes of a TV show. The dungeon master, in this analogy, would be the director, the scriptwriter, the set designer, the composer, and the casting agent all rolled into one. He lets the players into a world he's designed and just kind of lets them play around a bit. He'll often have a very specific story that he's leading them into, and it'll play out in chunks that once again support this TV metaphor. One evening or afternoon or whatever you spend playing D&D, one sit down is called a session. This is like one episode of a TV show, where the players may get into a fight or two, discover some intrigue, show off their talents, and maybe conclude a minor storyline. Maybe a goblin horde has raided a nearby mining settlement, and the heroes track down the raiders and recover the miners' possessions. Bam, there we go. You spent two or three hours doing it. That's one session. One episode. 
you can definitely sit down and play just one session with your friends. You can make fresh characters for it, have some fun, and then toss it away. You're done. But many groups choose to play over a longer scale. Many sessions can formulate one overarching storyline, and this is called an adventure. This would be, say, a season of a TV show. Maybe those goblin raiders were just minions of some greater adversary threatening the area. The heroes might be chasing goblins in one session, investigating political intrigue in another, and it all leads up to the end of the adventure where they can front their greater foe and they stop the threat for good. And this, of course, can stack up even further into a campaign, which is a series of complete adventures that all use the same characters. This would be basically the complete series of a TV show, the full eight-season run or whatever. Players get really attached to their characters, and they build them up over time, right? So you have a certain investment in them. Characters can improve and grow. They get new equipment. They get new skills. I know people that have been running campaigns for years with the same characters, just sticking at it, new adventures every, you know, six or seven months or whatever. Yeah, that's what I feel is the, the main appeal to Dungeons & Dragons. When I was younger, I, I don't think I had fully understood exactly what the game was or what it entailed. Mm-hmm. Um, but now learning about it, I'm lucky I didn't understand it 20 years ago or else I probably would have <laughs> been holed up in some basement somewhere playing a 24-hour marathon <laughs> of Dungeons & Dragons. Because you make it sound really, really interesting. And like you said, you, with your imagination, you can do whatever you want mm-hmm. um, and you can drag this out and develop characters and develop storylines and it's just really limitless have you ever been involved in a lengthy campaign yourself oh god no i'm rubbish at that <laughs> no, no attention span i have uh, i've successfully played through maybe two adventures but that would be a consistent string of maybe 12 sessions i mean that's that's longish that's good and it's nice to get your hooks in and sort of commit to those characters but sometimes people get bored you know you've been playing an archer for this long like and sometimes you get just tired of i don't want to use a bow and arrow anymore i want to i want to be a barbarian But, I mean, players are always the thorn in the side of the person running the campaign. The dungeon master sets this campaign up, has all these elaborate plans, and the players, they just... They just dick around. To return one last time to the TV analogy, the actors playing the heroes, these player characters, they're terrible actors. They don't (laughs) follow the script. They don't even read the script. They just ad-lib their way through every scene, and the director has to make the show work around them. It's not uncommon for a DM, which is short for Dungeon Master, to set up a scene that he's trying to funnel the players into and just have them completely spoil it. After all, in role-playing, you can do whatever you like there's no restrictions that hold you to a particular course of action sometimes the game can actually become a sort of contest between the players and the dm each trying to screw the other over but uh but that's not fun so so typically typically the dungeon master has to correct the course routinely to just keep the story working even if the players did manage to you know miss all the clues as to who murdered the king or if they wind up accidentally murdering the castle wizard and becoming outlaws, right? You just got to kind of roll with the punches and adapt on the fly. But, uh, you know, keeping all these people doing what you want them to do, this is why the mm-hmm. ducks are there. Because, quite frankly, when a player says, oh, I kill the owl bear, which, by the way, is a cross between an owl and a bear, they don't just write the story themselves. Chance factors into it, and that's what makes it an actual game. 
in D&D and almost all role-playing games, when you try to hit an enemy with your axe or climb a greasy wall wearing nothing but your loincloth or bluff your way into a fancy ball you haven't been invited to, you know, swim while wearing 100 pounds of armor, notice when a minstrel hit a flat note or not, doing any of these things, any of these tests of skill, you roll dice. In D&D, that is your 20-sided die. You don't have to roll in order to just walk across a room or to hold a conversation with a bartender. But if you're going to do an action that isn't assured of success, you need to roll 1d20. The dungeon master, the DM, then sets a target for you, usually in secret. If he needs you to roll a 10 or higher, that's pretty average, right? 50% chance, just like flipping a coin. An easy goal might be an 8 or even as low as a 5. You know, you really have to bungle to mess that up. Harder tasks might need a roll of 15 or higher. Uh, you know, even 20, basically impossible. So you roll the dice, you look at what you got, if you succeed, you succeed. If you fail, you fail. If you fail to climb a wall, then, I don't know, maybe you just don't get started. If you fail to hold on to the wall when a wind gusts against you and you're already 30 feet up, well, maybe you come falling down and break your neck. The challenge of resolving a fight is very similar, with a few kind of specific rules, since combat is one of the big strategic parts of the game. Every character has an armor class, which can tell you how hard they are to hit. It's like the target that a DM sets for a task. You have a personal armor class, AC, to prevent monsters from hitting you, and you can improve it by wearing armor, or by using magic, or by just being nimble and light on your feet. If you do surpass someone's AC and hit them, then you have to roll a die, or a couple of dice, to determine how much damage you do. A dagger might roll a d4, that awful... Oh, right, no, we don't have d4s. <laughs> uh, a sword might roll a d6. A longsword, a d8, or a huge battle axe might be a d12, or two six-sided die, two d6. Uh, when damage is dealt, you then subtract the number that you rolled from your opponent's hit points. Every character has hit points to tell you how healthy they are, and then when those hit points run out, dead or dying. So do some characters have more hit points than others? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's character sheet is full of descriptive information that tells you what they're good at or bad at. When you create a character, you make certain choices. First of all, you roll some dice to determine ability scores. These are your raw physical, social, and mental talents. Anything specific beyond that is a skill that you've learned, but this is what your mama gave you. Kelly, I would like you to take these three six-sided dice and uh, roll them for each score. Alrighty. So first, we have strength. This is your muscle and your oomph. How much can you bench? How many doors can you kick in if you stack them up in front of each other? I rolled a four, oh, so that's God. not very good. <laughs> How does that even happen? <laughs> well, okay, you've got, you've got three dice, so three is the lowest number you can get. <laughs> Eighteen is the highest. So I'm not seeing great things in your future. Like the worst role in the As, history of Dungeons and Dragons. You're not a burly warrior, Kelly. This is yeah. this is pitifully low. If you tried to do anything that required muscle, like swinging a sword or getting yourself out of bed, you would get a <laughs> negative modifier to that roll. If I roll a d20 to hit a guy with an armor class of 10, and I roll a 10, you'd miss. You'd miss in this case because you know if you even got your sword off the ground for every two strength points below 10, you get a minus one penalty to, to all your strength skills. So you would have minus three to all of your strength rolls. Anytime that you need to do something strength-related, you roll that 20-sided die, and you subtract three. So you roll a 10, you actually got a seven, and you missed this dude. Oh, that's too bad. Well, don't worry. <laughs> Next up, we've got 
dexterity. This is how nimble you are. This is your okay. anti coordination. This is how light you are on your feet. It's good for archery. It's good for pickpocketing. It's good for dodging. Well, I rolled a 10. That's not too bad. That's, right? that's average. You know what? That is dead average. No modifier to your rolls. Every Tom, Dick, and Groboss, Drog, Destroyer of Worlds is expected to have an average score of 10. That's unexceptional. Uh... Next, we have Constitution. This is your healthiness, your perseverance, your ability to tough it out. Higher numbers mean more hit points and a resistance to disease and, and hardship. You know, no bed sores. Yeah, 16. There, now we're talking. Okay, you might not be able to lift a broom with one hand alone, but your character never gets a cold. You get uh, plus three to all your constitution rolls and to your hit points. So you're relatively tough, despite your flimsy, flimsy, awful, sickly frame. Sorry, not sickly. <laughs> not sickly. Not sickly. So, on to the mental scores. We're going to start with intelligence. This is book smarts. This is your memory, your education, your problem solving, you know, higher higher maths and uh, Sudoku puzzles. Wizards like this one. Eighteen. Oh, that is as high a roll as you can possibly get on 3D6. You exist in the pinnacle of mankind, Kelly. You are as brilliant as it gets without basically using magic or being superhuman. You are Stephen Hawking smart and about as physically fit, really. (laughs) (laughs) Next is wisdom, which is more like your street smarts. Do you have common sense? Are you perceptive? Do you notice the things that are around you? Are you full of sage advice or just idiotic uh, fortune cookie quotes? Uh, fortune cookie quotes, I guess. <laughs> An eight. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You may be you may be smart as hell, but you uh, you tend to forget where you put your teacup. Um, a gnome once swindled you into a pyramid scheme. You know, <laughs> you get minus one to all your uh, wisdom checks. Finally, finally, last one. We get charisma which is how likable you are. A mixture of attractiveness and charm. High charisma makes you diplomatic and compelling and can get you better prices, exclusive access, and laid. Yes. Well, that's not too shabby. I will... uh, 13. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Okay, so you're... I'll get laid occasionally. (laughs) You're you're a bit of a a pretty simpleton. Uh, You know, you're not terribly wise, but... But you get plus one to your charisma checks. You must have that, um, you must have, like, that nerdy hot thing going on. Oh, yeah. Since, since your arms are, like, a big, soggy pasta noodle. <laughs> Again, very much like your <laughs> we, we are talking about character here, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, uh, you've got a character rolled, Kelly, and it's not even an awful one. No, it's called Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> This is the most simple and random way to make a character, and most people take a slightly more favorable approach. I mean, I, I just made you roll randomly. What if you had rolled all threes? That's not anything you particularly want to play with. So in normal play, you can do things like roll seven numbers and then drop one of them. Or for each number you roll, you do four dice instead of three, and then you toss away the lowest result. So you kind of stack your stuff up to be higher numbers. You can even buy your scores using a set starting number of points so that every character kind of winds up even and balanced. If we were playing for real, I would certainly allow you to move your numbers around just in case you wanted to put that big hot 18 somewhere more important to you or slip that (laughs) 
god-awful four somewhere you don't care about. You yeah. could be hideously ugly and put the four in your charisma, or you could you could put the 18 in strength if you actually wanted to be a fighter or a barbarian type. Six abilities determining the basic shape of your person. Not every person is the same, though. Some strong men in the world are builders, and some strong men are athletes, and some strong men hang out in bars and scare me a little. Uh, at this point of character creation, a player needs to choose a race and a class, and that determines kind of really who you are. Now, race is not always the most tasteful term for us to throw around in real life, but in D&D it's okay, because there are literal different races. You can be a human, an elf, a dwarf, and all kinds of more stuff. The race will determine how you look and a bit of your cultural heritage, whether you grew up in a hole or in a tree, but it also gives you specific skills. Elves are good with bows and they don't sleep. Dwarves like holes. You get tweaks to your ability scores. Uh, elves get plus two to their dexterity score for being lithe and supple like a twig, and they get minus two to their constitution for being akin to a twig in most other ways. Dwarves, on the other hand, get plus two to constitution, but minus two for charisma because they're ugly, I guess. <laughs> and they just take everything from dwarves. So these, these numbers are the rules for D&D? Uh, sort of. I, that's... D&D came out in 1974. That was a long time ago, and it's gone through a lot of changes. It's just like wrestling, really. There's eras of play with their own rules and their own fans and their own styles. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons is what I learned, or pretended to learn when I was just a little tyke, but D&D 3rd Edition, which came out around 2000, that's what I played in high school, and that's the version that I hold in my heart. That is roughly the rules that I've been telling you right here. Fourth edition has been the powerhouse these past years, but uh, even now they're developing a new edition with new rules. Every edition has its own focuses and its own fan base. Third edition focused on skills more than any previous rule sets, whereas uh, fourth edition basically spun things right back to connect with its wargaming roots and made combat much more tactical and encouraged players to use a grid map and move figures of their characters around. With new rules come changes to races and also to classes. So what's a class, exactly? I, uh, I mentioned this in the wrestling episode. I don't know if you picked up on that. I, I made a reference to there being classes of wrestlers, like technical wrestlers, power oh, wrestlers, yeah. brawlers and stuff. Yeah, that was my role-playing callback. In a role-playing game, your race is what you're born as, but your class is what you do. It's your job. It's your profession. This typically comes down to you being a fighter class with uh, martial combat skills or a magic user class that can cast spells or like a roguish thief class that excels at slinking through shadows and copping fields of unsuspecting strangers. So basically you choose between uh, combat, magic, or skills. Most other classes are sort of combinations of the above. Like you can be a ranger, which is kind of a survival skilled type with combat talents. Or you can be a paladin, which is a fighter that can use some magic. A bard is all three. It's a fighter, mage, thief type that somehow makes all of these things lame and stupid. <laughs> all the classes wind up determining certain special abilities and also determine what kind of armor you can wear. Wizards can't wear any armor, for example, and thieves can only wear really light stuff. But it also determines what weapons you can use. A sorcerer just wouldn't know what to do with a big double-headed axe, but a barbarian could pick it up. There's lots of classes, all with their own specialties and their own gear. And in a lot of ways, that does remind me of a classical illusion. Moss makes a classical illusion. I've been informed that I spoke too fast in the last episode during my illusions. Since this is an experimental podcast in its early stages, I guess I can slow it down a bit for our dimmer 
listeners. The class system in Dungeons & Dragons, particularly its division of weapons and armor, is highly reminiscent of the designations given to ancient Roman gladiators. In early gladiatorial history, prisoners of war were forced to fight to the death using their traditional cultural armament. Thracians would use their own curved swords, for example, while tribal Samnites got to use their heavier shields. Similarly, in early Dungeons & Dragons, players couldn't choose a race and a class, they simply chose a class that included races. You could be an elf, a dwarf, a fighter, or a mage, both of the latter being human. The classes used their own stereotypical weapons, elves with bows, dwarves with axes, similar to the racial weapons of the Roman gladiatorial arenas. However, as gladiatorial combat became more popular in Rome, the Thracian and Samnite arms became less racially locked and more of a category that really any gladiator could utilize. More categories sprung up as well to reflect different sets of armament. This progression was echoed in D&D, where in more progressive editions, a dwarf didn't have to use an axe just because he was a dwarf. No, he could choose to be a mage that didn't have to use axes at all, and even a feeble halfling could choose a class that used dwarven axes. In Rome, there are more than a dozen unique gladiator classes, and a combatant could be anything from a cestus who fought with an eponymous metal glove, to a scissor who used a pair of twin blades. The Roman classes also determined armor in a manner similar to a thief class that relies on trickery and technique in combat. The Retarius used a trident and dagger and net without the benefit of a helmet or much armor at all. His advantage was in speed and trickery. The Secutor on the other Cestus was the fighter class, with a sword, a shield, a heavy helmet, and armor on much of his body. He didn't have the range or the combat options of the Retarius, but he was more of a walking tank. Skills were also implicit in certain classes, with venators and bestiari specializing in hunting animals, while equites rode horses, just like role-playing rangers and paladins, respectively. Now, I do say that a gladiator could be whatever class he wanted, but of course most were in fact slaves or prisoners, so the choice was probably more a matter of natural fit or arena demand. Did they have a shortage of retari because they kept getting stabbed in the head? Well, hand this next batch of grunts some tridents and nets and send them off to glory. I suppose you could also equate this forced class choice to the classic dilemma around the game table, where the first guy to show up has already rolled a fighter, and the only person who understands the magic system has rolled a wizard, naturally, so you're left to pretty much be the healing class cleric because every party needs a cleric, even though clerics are balls and you'd rather be a gnome bard. This has been Moss Makes a Classical Illusion. It got fast there at the end, I hope that's okay. I don't know about that. I, I feel like I've already talked a lot today. Uh, well, I'm not sure that bit works as well, you know, when you're talking for 45 minutes for it. <laughs> Noted, yeah. So, Kelly, do you do you feel like you're getting an idea of what this game is all about? Yes, yes I am. You tell a story using a character, you roll some abilities, you choose a race and a class to get skills, you roll dice to do things. That's basically the gist of it. All the skills, all the abilities, they tend to just come down to modifiers. You roll dice to do everything, and then you add your modifiers. Are you naturally charismatic and trained in the fine skill of intimidation well then you get to add plus seven to your d20 roll to try and convince that town guard not to get in your way and a lot of it comes down to good sense and the dungeon master's discretion as well i mean if you're not trained in intimidation but you as a player describe a wonderfully gruesome threat that you make to the guard's soft fleshy bits if he doesn't stand aside. Well then, yeah, the DM can totally toss you a plus two or a plus four on your roll just for getting into it, just for being in character. Maybe he even makes it an automatic success because you gave such a good speech or made such a good description of what your character is going to do. A good game runner will reward creativity and players getting into character. That's role playing. That's the role-playing part of this game. 
pretending that you're someone else and acting the way that you think they would. Some people have a really hard time exposing themselves and pretending like that, even around friends. And of course, it's not necessary to enjoy the game, but in the end, all tabletop role-playing games are about communication and imagination. They're about sort of losing yourself in a fantastic world that is as much your creation as anybody else's. It gives the power to shape a story while also providing a challenge for all involved. Yeah, well, I mean, learning what I've learned now about Dungeons & Dragons, I'm really surprised why it isn't more um, universally praised. There's been some lukewarm controversies through the years, mostly from a highly conservative right-wing religious community condemning the use of magic and demonic imagery. You know, sort of the same way that Harry Potter had flack thrown at it for allegedly promoting witchcraft, that sort of thing. There was actually a pretty hilarious comic made by a guy named Jack Chick, where he portrays a girl who gets sucked into the morbid world of tabletop gaming. Uh, in, in brief, a girl commits suicide because her character dies, an evil dungeon master inducts her players into a witch's coven, some spells are cast, and it ends with the protagonist being saved by the grace of God and a good old-fashioned book burning. <laughs> <laughs> But in the end, role-playing games are really just cemented in this deep, dark nerd culture. Like, they're a touchstone of it. It's not religious controversy that's keeping people from the game. It's just the fact that even if video games become cool, or comics, or board games, or whatever, there are just so many unseemly connotations behind Dungeons & Dragons. Overweight dorks, hunched in their parents' basements, shying away from the sun, living out hopeless fantasies of being strong or powerful or attractive, pretending to woo maidens when in reality their only female contact is with their own mothers. <laughs> the game of pretending to be someone else combines all the uncomfortable self-exposure of the worst drama and acting nerds with the infantilism of children playing make-believe. It's embarrassing for people to try, and I've known players who loved the game, but still never really let themselves get into the character. Despite this, though, role-playing is fun, and even if you don't feel like sitting down with a cape on and saying, It is I, Thalmor the Bard! Shall I sing you a song, friends? Right? You don't need to do that. It's okay. You can say, Thalmor would like to sing you a song. He sings you a song. It's great. <laughs> right? Like, you, you don't need mm -hmm. to put yourself out there, but... Even if you don't want to, it is still really fun. It's a really entertaining social activity that is all about spending time with friends. It's about telling stories. It's about just playing a clever game that's half competition and half cooperation. It's it's really um, limitless in what you can do. Uh, it's you know I, I I can't promise that I'm gonna become a hardcore D and D gamer, but no, more so than I'll start watching wrestling on a regular. Well, yeah, I mean it's. Mm -hmm. But you know what? There's there's a lot of good stuff to get out of it. I've I've actually taught a lot of people how to do tabletop role playing, and always with really positive results. People love it. You remember Kelly when we were in teaching school? I offered to teach a bunch of prospective teachers. I'm saying teach a lot here, uh, I instructed them on how to play D&D, simply so that they could sympathize with those weird little pale kids in the front rows of their classrooms. Uh, we had a great turnout of complete innocence, people that knew nothing about the game. They didn't even know what Dungeons & Dragons was, but they turned up to learn how to play so that they could be better teachers. The first girl to show up sat down in front of the TV and said, all right, turn this on. Let's play. Let's play the game. <laughs> no. No, Kim. 
You don't play on the TV. You play <laughs> in your mind. <laughs> yeah. She she looked she looked pretty spooked at that. <laughs> and then and then Sebastian, the prospective math teacher, showed up in a cape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that was almost too much. Fortunately, it, it was a joke on his part. He did take the cape off. Uh, we played for the evening, and everybody had a really great time. They really got into it. They were casting spells and sneaking around in the shadows and role-playing, getting into character. We even played a second time later on, a couple weeks later, to accommodate a couple people that didn't make it the first time. Oh, and then when I was teaching last year, I tricked a couple classrooms full of kids into rolling up characters for an assignment. As a writing assignment, I was teaching English class, I had them roll ability scores and then determine what their character was like based on the numbers. I didn't tell them what they were doing, of course, but the stories they developed were brilliant. They saw so much in these basic numbers. Strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, charisma. There's so much you can get from that. A few of them even wrote and performed dialogues between their characters. In other words, they did role-playing. And then after the assignment was done, I revealed the awful, horrendous truth to them. It was just hilarious. Ah, some of them were just agape. <laughs> You're all nerds now. You've played Dungeons and Dragons, and you can never get rid of that. You're stained. You're tainted. Party now. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I do really believe that there's an educational value in tabletop role-playing games. It's a powerful social developmental tool. And if nothing else, they're just an extremely fun thing to do with some friends on a lazy afternoon. Well, Moss, thanks for um, for doing all this. Uh, it's been very informative. Really interesting exploration of a, an appreciated uh, form of entertainment, of arts, and uh, culture. Well, you are very welcome, Kelly. And, you know, just like the supplemental materials that you posted on our website about wrestling, uh, the website, again, is fringescholars.wordpress.com. Just like you put these materials up, uh, which... Nobody asked you for, but, you know, you just gave them anyway, and th thank you for that. I'm, I'll post some additional links relating to role-playing, including some great systems that people could pick up if they do want to learn how to play. But uh, you know what? With the rudimentary knowledge that I've just fed you, you can just go out and play as is. Just do it like, a, like I did as a kid with no concept of the rules. All you need is a handful of dice, any shape, or you get a deck of cards, and uh, you just bring a little bit of creativity to it. Make some characters, tell some stories, make up your own rules as you go along. Just have fun. Here, here. So, Kelly, do we do we have any idea what we're going to do for next for the next episode? Uh, yes, actually. I've um, thought that the next time we talk about wrestling, that I'll look more at the wonderful international uh, scope of wrestling and sort of broaden horizons beyond um, just the American or, or WWE. That's really cool. Oh, man, I was just in Mexico, and I tried so hard to go and see some Mexican wrestling. I wanted to see some Lucha Libre so bad. I was slipping bartenders, you know, 50 peso bills and just being like, hey, man, you know where I can find some Lucha Libre? <laughs> and it never, never panned out. Puerto Vallarta only does it like once a month, so. Uh, well, I have yeah. no idea how I'm going to compliment that, so I'm glad that we've got a month to put together this episode, because uh, international. So the way, mm -hmm. that we're, the way that we're going to do episodes in the future 
uh, presuming that you've listened to the first two episodes, which, oh God, thank you for doing that. Um, you got a pretty poor impression of what it's going to be like, because really we're going to split it up. We're going to have Kelly talk about probably just wrestling, <laughs> and then I'm going to talk about something else. It's not always going to be role-playing games. It might be something else. It might be books. It might be TV shows. But we're going to sort of divide the time between the two of us. I feel like that. Is that fair? Does that sound fair? Oh, yeah. Shall we end this? From the darkest borders of good taste. From the bowels of entertainment and culture. We are the Fringe Scholars. This episode is now over.